Good evening, and welcome to the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. Um, I was saving this for the best moment, saving it for the last. Well, it's not the last, but... So tonight, first and foremost, happy birthday, Taylor Swift, and yesterday, Frank Sinatra. But tonight, we're going to talk about the four-headed monster that the Rolling Stones once called unstoppable. The Beatles... Eight Days a Week, a documentary by Ron Howard, produced by Brian Grazer, Ron Howard, starring John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr, released in the fall of 2016. This is Eight Days a Week, winning the Grammy for Best Music Film at the 59th Grammy Awards. Yeah. A lot has been said about the Beatles. A lot we could interpret. Here we go. America's always seen as the motherland for British performers, maybe for any performer in the world. What about the reports that you guys are nothing but a bunch of British Elvis Presley? It's not true, it's not true. (laughs) What that is, is what any comedian would want to do. The, The trick of dealing with heckles is to say the first thing that comes into your brain. And they'd, they'd already got to that place. And they could all do it. I got a question. Do you want to get a haircut at all? No. No, nope. no, 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 thanks. I had one yesterday. <laughs> That's no lie. The Beatles were cheeky. Kind of where every kid wants to be, quite a lot of adults want to be. Being able to talk back to people who are telling you what to do. They were cheeky, and I think people in the world like that. It's not aggressive, it's not nasty. It's just brazen. Why does their music excite them so much? We don't know, really. We used to have this saying that I used to chant and they would answer. When they were depressed, you know, thinking the group was going nowhere and this is a shitty deal and we're in a shitty dressing room. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they go, to the top, Johnny. And I say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the toppermost, to the poppermost, Johnny. And I say, right. And we'd all say, cheer up we had to all decide that we agreed on a thing before we do it that is like one of the classic things about the beatles four votes had to be carried for any idea to go through instead of going for an individual thing we went for the strongest format and for equals that was one thing to be said about us we were very very close to each other We'd always stick together. We all had to agree. So it was a strong decision. You know, the proof's in the pudding. It worked really well. And so the Beatles, like many, well, not like many, because some bands didn't operate as a democracy. But the Beatles supposedly did. And the fifth Beatle was their manager. Yeah. In fact, their manager supposedly was in love with John Lennon. And um, it's it's interesting. It's interesting. Brian Epstein was their, their manager. He later died in 1967. And just think if he had lived, I don't think they would have broken up the way they did. I don't think Yoko Ono would have gotten in the way they did. And if you notice in last night's mockumentary... 
This is Spinal Tap. There's even a Yoko Ono in that situation. She wants to write the lyrics. And the way Nigel just kind of looks like she wants to what? Yeah, she wants to write the lyrics. Um, the film was produced with the cooperation, cooperation of Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, and Beatles widows Yoko Ono and Olivia Harrison. Prior to the film's release, it was announced that it included 30 minutes of film footage shot for the band's 1965 concert at Shea Stadium. That concert was filmed by Ed Sullivan Production and broadcast on TV in 1966. Yes. The film project was announced by Hulu on May 4th, 2016 as its first documentary acquisition as part of a planned Hulu documentary films collection. The film premiered theatrically on September 5th before debuting on the streaming service on September 17th. The Beatles' eight days a week, the touring years, grossed $2.9 million in the U.S. and Canada and $9.4 million in other territories, including $1.4 million in the U.K. The film's opening weekend in North America, it made $785,000 from 85 theaters for an average of nine. Thousand two hundred and thirty-nine. Yeah, very high on the Rotten Tomatoes. That's usually a good thing. Ah, on September sixteenth, two thousand sixteen, Apple Corps and Subtil were sued by representatives of Sid Bernstein, the concert promoter of the nineteen sixty-five Shea Stadium concert, over the ownership of the master recordings from the event. While the copyright of the songs was not contested. The footage itself was claimed to be owned by Sid Bernstein Presents, LLC, the company representing the Bernstein interests, who himself died in 2013. Ah, yeah. So even now, there's still controversy behind the film. Hmm. The Beatles touring years, I mean... Yeah. There, there's so much to be said about the Beatles, you know, the people who were involved, the process. Yeah. All of them, by the way, were very emphatic about Jacksonville. They said if there was going to be segregation of any kind, we're not going. We played a people. That's what we did. We didn't play to like those people that people you know what i mean we just play it to people it was amazing that the four of them young men seeing the world started to act up and blow back on this very very hot and sensitive issue i love the beatles for them and i'll always love them even when i'm a 105 year old grandmother i love them and paul mccartney yeah adrian from brooklyn that's love All she's gonna love until she's a hundred and five. There was the announcement of this concert, and I was like, "Can we?" And my mom was like, "We don't have the money for this." That's Whoopi Goldberg. Something I don't know how she did it. I don't know. I don't know how she did it, but she got two tickets, and she didn't tell me. So this is what happened. She said, we need to go. I said, where are we going? She said, I'll let you know when we get there. Okay. So we're on the train. I'm not paying any attention. And we get up and I said, where are we? And she said, we're at Shea Stadium. 
And I said, why? And she held up two tickets. And all I remember is my head going, I talked to people in my life, and they said, what do you like to do? What are your hobbies and stuff? And I sort of said, you know, I like songwriting. I've written a couple of songs. And they'd all go, oh, yeah, great. What did you think about the football? And I'd go, oh, OK, no, nobody interested. When I said that to John, he said, oh, so have I. I went, whoa, big connection. He, I'd never met anyone who'd written songs. So that's how we started. I think it's something like just short of 300 songs John and I wrote together. And what's interesting is you can see it in Paul McCartney's face that it's still there. That even now when he writes songs by himself, he's still thinking, I wish John was there to help me finish it. You know, talk about a duo. Okay, they met when they were very, very young. This documentary talks about, okay, they're all thrust into this media spotlight. This is so new. This is so fresh. Okay. When they first descended upon America. And see, they had stipulations about that. Because a lot of British musicians and entertainers had gone to America. And didn't make it. They were big in England, but they the the trajectory didn't, you know, shoot like that star that they had intended. And the Beatles said, we will go to America when we have a number one hit in America. And I Want to Hold Your Hand became a number one hit. And boom, they were off and running. And they landed at the newly named JFK Airport in 1964. When many of us were not alive, I wasn't I wasn't even a thought at that moment. And then on February 9th, 1964, they played The Many Nights of Ed Sullivan and further cemented Beatlemania. So they weren't just big in their home of England. They became big all over the world. And it took America to really just I mean, British music, you know, yeah. It was, a, it was a moment. It was a moment. There are so many different people talking about what it means, this film, eight days a week. The touring years. You know, they couldn't tour after a while. You know, people would scream. And, and Phil. I think Phil Collins said it best. He says, you know, what I can't get out of my head is the, the yelling and the piss. The smell of the piss. I can't do Phil Collins. So all he remembers is the yelling and the smell of piss. Yeah. Watching the Beatles. I mean, because the girls would just piss themselves. It's true. It's true. I was 15. Living in segregation. It was an apartheid that's probably difficult for a lot of people to even picture. The only white person I would even have contact with was a salesman who would come into the community. I was ripe for something different, I think, by the time I heard that the Beatles were coming to town. No music. Yoko Ono, don't come after me. Don't come after me, Yoko. Come on. All right, here we go. Standing up with everybody and then just yelling at 
loud as I could and singing along. Yep. And so that's her story. That's Dr. Kitty Oliver's story about the Beatles and about how they changed her life in segregated, you know, the segregated South. John was the most incredible rhythm guitarist. You couldn't not look at him if you were out front, you know what I mean? Gong, 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 that drive. Had a great drive in his, in his, uh, so he would was rhythm guitar. I was another rhythm guitar when we started. Then we went to Hamburg, my guitar bust, so I was then put on the bass, which I didn't want, because <laughs> I, I wanted to... He didn't want. Glamorous. The bass wasn't glamorous. No one else was going <laughs> to play bass. I mean, John was not going to play bass. <laughs> and George was the lead guitarist. He was a bit better than any of us on guitar. Mm. And he was the youngest, too. I mean, if you look at... um. George Harrison. Yeah, there, there's a lot going on in this documentary, and there's a moment. If I can find it. It's very interesting. Very interesting. Here's one tip. Um. I had seen it. There is a meeting with them and Ronnie Spector of the Ronettes. And she talks about it. I love their attitude. I love that they weren't conceited. I love that they just were like normal guys. You know, like I like I'm talking to you. That's how they were. They didn't have that um air or I'm famous now or because they always thought about Liverpool. They would take us to the Liverpool bar where they played, and then we'd take them to our show. Because they weren't famous in America yet. So and we were famous in America. Now we were coming famous in England. So they really appreciated us, and they would take us to all the clubs, and then they take us to all the uh, in the daytime to all the just get T-shirts, especially John and the boots and all that stuff. So when we got back to America, I remember Cher saying, "I'm so jealous of you. You have all these great English clothes on, and I don't. Me and Sonny just sitting here in the studio, and and she was telling the truth." Because we, we did come back from England with everything on new. Yep. If I can find it, there's more to that story. You know, when they came to play Ed Sullivan. Um, you know, when you when you do a show like this, I mean, it's it's all in the moment. It is truly all in the moment. And, you know, half the time it's like, hey, ah, this is a moment. We didn't speak a lot about it, but we knew what each other was going through. So that kind of pulled us together a lot. Being teenagers, you laughed your way through it. You didn't talk about it much, and you'd like know that we each needed to have fun. 
and we just needed to do something that would get us away from this tragedy, we would try and write songs. So our first little songs we put in a book, Just Fun was one of them. Too Bad About Sorrows was another one. They weren't very good little songs, but I would write a Lennon-McCartney original. Hmm. And that, and that's um, John and Paul losing their mothers. And, you know, Paul McCartney talks about that, how he lost his mother to cancer. And he knew John Lennon's mother, Julia Lennon. And said she was a very, you know, handsome looking woman. That's how he described her. She had very red hair. And she taught John how to play the, the what is it? I think it was the ukulele. But she played something else, too, you know. She played kind of... It was the banjo. That's what he said. You know, she was she was run over by an off-duty police officer. And, you know, that's kind of how John has said, you know, that where he got the chip on his shoulder from is, is from that. And the whole loss behind it. Hmm... I'm looking. We wrote on the road. Mainly me and John. George developed as a writer later and became an unbelievable writer. But at the beginning, it was mainly me and John. So we would be in a hotel room with two twin beds, and he'd have his acoustic guitar, I'd have mine, sit opposite each other. And, cause I- and so I want to make sure that I don't play any music because I don't want the estates to come after me. Yeah. Mm. I mean, their their whole story is legendary. I think it's been told so many times. I think we, you know, I think it's better when they tell the story. I remember so vividly showing up at a show and you'd be in your ordinary clothes and then you'd take out of your little suitcase, your suit and your shirt and put them on. And then finally, your beetle boots. And you'd stand up. And you just looked at each other like, yeah, there we are. Yep. So we're going to end it right there because I can't play anymore. Um, The Beatles ended their touring at Candlestick Park in San Francisco. In 1965, they, they, you know, and that was the big controversy. It was like, how does a rock band not tour? Okay. And what they had decided to do at that moment was to focus on the studio and just to start working like mad. And, you know, they put out Revolver and then um, they had heard that year pets, pet shop sounds by the Beach Boys and they were inspired by it. And they were like, well, you know, we really should make something like that. I really love this album. That's what they've said. And, you know, there was always that friendly competition between the Beach Boys and the Beatles. And even Brian Wilson said, when asked about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band, he said, it's the single greatest album I've ever heard. Yeah. So the Beatles... Paul McCartney said, you know what? We need we need to be someone else. We need to we need to be a different band. Uh, like a like a 
throwaway band. And so that's how they came up with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And this concept album, concept albums were, you know, back then you put out an album and had a couple of fillers on it and had maybe like two or three hits. And the Beatles were like, no. We want to make a piece of art. We want this album to be regarded as a piece of art. Okay? Nothing really standalone on it. And so, I mean, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, after the touring years, is when they really came into their own. And that album, that album went on to win them a Grammy for Album of the Year. They'd been nominated so many times. You know, strangely enough, you think of all these people who win all these Grammys. The Beatles never won Record of the Year. Um, they'd won Song of the Year for Michelle. They'd won Best New Artist. But Sgt. Pepper is the only time they weren't even nominated for the White Album. The White Album, which is a legendary album. You know, right after they stopped touring, they would make appearances and they would do live shows on television. But they wouldn't tour. I think because the touring, the way they did it, they were feeding off of their monitors and these girls are screaming over it and you really can't hear yourself play or think over the screaming. And also the technology itself, the technology itself was not where it is now. You know, you couldn't put a mod, you basically became deaf after playing on stage. And, you know, um, Also, you think of the Beatles themselves, okay? When they each started to fall in love with different women, they changed. And John changed probably the most of all because he wanted Yoko Ono to be in the studio with him. And, you know, that's why I talked about Spinal Tap last night is because there's so many trappings that a lot of those musicians would not find funny that is right in your face in this is Spinal Tap and that is why it's such a great mockumentary right down to the Frank Sinatra obsessed limo driver played by the late Bruno Kirby okay um why I didn't want to talk about Taylor Swift here's the thing I This is about the Beatles, but I want to just... I have thought about talking about her, and I thought, you know what? And I have a lot of respect for her. And she's a December baby. I thought, no, she's not ready. Maybe in deeper into December, I'll think about it, okay? But tonight, we talked about eight days a week. The touring years. Beatles. Directed by Ron Howard. So many different moments in this documentary, some things that you didn't know. I mean, uh, you know, Dr. Kitty right there. That's a good story. Whoopi Goldberg's story. Eddie Izzard talking about them. Even um, Mike Myers talking about the Beatles. You know, here's the thing. I was raised on the music of the Beatles, okay? They're not one of my favorites, though. I I know their songs. I think their songs are great. And I've stated on this podcast that I'm a devotee of The Doors, okay? There's a difference between the music of The Doors and The Beatles. The Beatles were saying, all you need is love. And And The Doors are like, light my fire, honey. So it's a different kind of love, okay? Huh. This this is a good documentary though if you want to be nostalgic or if you just if you're new to the Beatles and I know there are people out there who don't listen to the Beatles well 
This is your chance. Eight days a week, released in 2016, directed by Ron Howard. Unpleasant dreams. <laughs> 